Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. There is a question, a burning question, of why there is such a lack of women at tech companies and at finance companies. And joining us now at the Bloomberg Business of Equality Summit is Sharon Bowen. She is a partner at Seneca Women, which is an app designed to promote women in technology. She also happens to be the former commissioner of the US CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Uh, We are so happy to have you, Sharon. Thank you for being with us. I want to start with, where are we? How much progress have we actually made when it comes to these male-dominated fields like technology and banking? We're making progress, but frankly, a little bit too slowly, in my opinion. Um, One of the stats that I want to highlight is when we look at global bank CEOs, only 2% of women. When we look at global bank boards, less than 20% of women. And so I think in finance, we definitely have a leadership gap that we need to fill. So Sharon, I've spent... uh you know, over 25 years on Wall Street. And what I noticed over the years in doing a lot of recruiting is, you know, an incoming recruiting class of young folks out of business school or something that looks really representative of the overall population in terms of gender and, 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 and ethnicity. But as you go through the ranks, it really just becomes more male, more white. Mm-hmm. And what do you think corporate America generally can do to kind of support women, sure. support minorities mm-hmm. uh, throughout their career path? Yes. Um, and you're right, we've, I think we've solved the pipeline problem. Uh, that used to be the paradigm, where are they? We can't find them. Um, and I think we've solved that problem. Um, but I think companies have to look at um, themselves holistically. What barriers are there that may be preventing people uh, to success? Um, you know, whether or not um, we consider uh, not just things like, you know, flex time, but uh, frankly, equal pay. Um, that's one way we can change the dynamic. And I think more importantly, you know, I think one of the myths out there is that, you know, we don't need to fix the women, we need to fix the system. And so I think companies need to be a lot more intentional in approaching these issues and finding ways to engage their employees um, in a better way. So what are some reasons why? I mean, just to give a sense of what you have done, because your career has been storied. It's been tremendous, including uh, being a corporate and transactional uh, lawyer, Davis Polk, Latham and Watkins, some of the you know, most uh, premier law firms. Why aren't there more women atop these high-paying fields that typically are among the most respected in society? Well, you know, if I had to start with the whys, why women aren't at the table, why women aren't getting equal pay, why women aren't advancing. Frankly, we could be here for a while. Um, <laughs> we so have, we've just, got three minutes. Yeah, Go ahead. three minutes. Um, but you know, what I'd like to focus much more on is, is sort of the future. And I, and I you know, quoted earlier uh, Mae Jameson, who was the first African-American uh, woman astronaut to travel in space. And she said, the future never just happened. It was created. And so I think it's our job to you know, harness our collective power and our knowledge to create a different future and a future that we really want to see. So at at Seneca Women, I know you've created a new technology product to address some of these issues. So Seneca Connect, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so Seneca Connect is the first app designed to advance women at work and in the economy. Uh, We work with Apple to create it. We were one of 11 women-owned business entrepreneurs selected for the first Apple uh, entrepreneurship camp. And I'm really excited about that. 
and the fact that our app is really trending uh, well uh, in the App Store. You could download it for free. Uh, we also have uh, enterprise versions for corporations to help them create a much more diverse and inclusive culture. How does it do that? What does it actually do? So we give uh, daily content, tips and tactics, lessons from um, world leaders. We give you tools and resources that you can use to, to, move, uh, to move the needle, if you will. And we use it as a way for companies to engage their employees uh, with feedback because we know with greater employee engagement, you get better productivity, you get better profitability, and people feel better about coming to work every day. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, and definitely something that we've seen again and again shown that the, the broader the viewpoints, the broader uh, the diversity of people's backgrounds and experiences, the better the business case. Have you found that most companies are receptive to that story? Well, not only they're receptive, but I think that the data bears that out. I think pretty much through all metrics, um, I think we're now sort of past that uh, that proof, if you okay. will. It's just about um, doing it. Yeah, which is which is good. It's about doing it, um, and it's also about being you know, much more intentional in terms of where we invest our money, and uh, and making sure that we support women-owned businesses. And I I think earlier I mentioned that only you know two percent of VC funds and four percent of bank loans go to women-owned businesses, uh, which I find that troubling, uh, particularly given the amount of wealth that women control. I think we will be controlling something like $72 trillion of global wealth Bring it. by 2020. <laughs> <laughs> and so we need to use that money that we have in our bank accounts and in private equity funds to make sure we can lend to women. Because it's puzzling to me why we can't use our own money to lend to women. So yeah, the $72 trillion in my bank account, Paul. Yes. If you yes. ever want anything, <laughs> just you know, let me know. I'll Very be right good. there I, for I you. <laughs> Sharon yeah. Brown, thank you so much. Sharon is a partner at Seneca uh, Women, also a former commissioner of the U.S. Uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Thank you so much, thank you so much uh, for, for having joining me. us here at Bloomberg at the Bloomberg Business of Equality Summit here in, at Bloomberg HQ in New York. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Business of Equality Summit at Bloomberg headquarters in New York. We are so excited uh, to bring in our next guest, Carolyn Tasted, Group President for North America for Procter & Gamble, uh, joining us after her panel on gender equality. And I've got to say, when you talk about equality, what is the ultimate goal? I mean, what is sort of uh, the best case scenario of a fully equal boardroom or a fully equal company look like to you? Thanks, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and what it means to us from an overall standpoint for P&G is, uh, frankly, winning. Uh, you know, so we know that when we have an e good. when we have an equal world, when we create a world where we have equal voice for women and men and for all individuals, that communities are healthier, businesses thrive, the world's a better place for all of us. And so from a business perspective, we know it's a key contributor to growth. And so for me, equality, equals winning and a great place to work. So within P&G, a global organization, a huge organization, what are some success stories that have pushed equality and diversity through in your organization? And then commercially, what are some of the stumbling blocks you guys have come up against? Uh, great question. Uh, from, a, from an overall standpoint, we at P&G have what we call our principles, our values, our purpose as a company. And so our value is very deeply tied to a world where everybody gets to bring their full self to work. So equality very broadly um, identified. And we think about that from all types of intersectionality. 
uh, both visible and invisible uh, as you think about that. So that's a core part of who we are as a company. It's a really big part of why I'm still with this company more than 30 years later. It's <laughs> just a great company to work for, and it's a company that values individuals. And so that's certainly a starting point. As we think about equality, uh, we also know that it's really important. What a company stands for, what a company works on, is important to the stakeholders around it. Whether those are investors, whether those are partners, consumers, customers, uh, our employees. It's really important uh, today uh, for companies to speak up on issues that are important to all of those stakeholders and that's what we do with our citizenship voice and one of those part one of part of that voice is really equality whether it be gender equality whether it be diversity and inclusion in a very broad in a very broad perspective so there are a growing number of socially responsible funds and people who are looking to invest in companies that do focus more on equality how does one measure it? I mean, from your perspective, how should people look at a more equal company? What should that look like? It, it's a great, we think about it as equal representation, but we also think about it as equal voice. And those might be different things. That's so hard to measure though. It is hard to measure. Representation's not hard to measure. Right. Representation's not hard to measure, uh, but you can also, uh, we, we all do company engagement surveys. We all get feedback from our employees. We work very hard to have dialogue so that we can get employees' feedback on what's working or not working. And so that's where the engagement comes in. And, and you think about, we know that engagement drivers are, uh, for our employees, are really making sure that they have a company they can be proud of. They, have a they feel like they can make a difference in the work that they do every day. Uh, they have a place to really learn, to grow, to advance their career. All of those are engagement drivers and a part of what delivers that for people is a company that stands for things that are good. We want to be a force for good within the world that we live in today, within the communities that our people live in, the communities we serve. And we also believe that when we integrate that, when we get that right and it's fully integrated to the business, which is always our intention, it, always be it also becomes a force for good, for growth rather. We're speaking with Carolyn Tasted, P&G North American Group President on Diversity, Equality. One of the ways I think we can measure it is in the paycheck. And I know there's a U.S. government I issue about uh, paycheck transparency where, you know, I guess you have to report data about, you know, pay on uh, gender and race and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. Is that something that P&G embraces? We, we look very carefully at pay equality. We are very committed to pay equality and making sure that we pay equally for equal work, equal pay, uh, across any uh, any aspect. And so we audit that externally, we work on that internally, we measure it to make sure we deliver pay equality, and we feel very good about our work in that place. We have a very, very high correlation to uh, equal pay, equal work for women, for men, for people of color. That said, the other thing we set is a very high standard for ourselves. We are not 50-50 yet at the very top of our company. Uh, we are committed to get there, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And if you think about uh, all of the studies from a pay equality and a pay transparency, the biggest contributor to pay inequality is lack of women's representation and people of color representation at the very top of organizations. And so while we feel great about the work that we do and our, and our um, intentionality of equal pay, equal work, we also know that we contribute to the wealth gap by virtue of not having equal representation and we're very committed to closing that. 
Where are we in terms of making progress in this front? I remember last year we talked about some of the brands that Procter mm-hmm. & Gamble has, whether it's Bounty or Charmin or Crest and Dawn, and I'm thinking of the advertisements yes. that I'll see on television, and they do represent uh, you know, more diverse families and different living situations, and we talked about how that's conscious. It's, yes, it's, it's, it's very an intentional. intentional thing. I'm wondering, is there ever pushback from consumers or from you know, groups of people that perhaps aren't aren't necessarily, you know, loving that. Uh, there can be. There certainly can be. For When we get it right for our consumers, for the people we're targeting, we, we tend to do well. But certainly there are situations where we take a stand on things and, it's, uh, it, and we get different reactions. So you may have uh, seen our Gillette campaign that yeah. we launched in January. Oh, yeah. Which is really all about believing in the very best of men, believing in men setting a great role model for the next generation. Uh, but when we launched that campaign, we had uh, different reactions. Did <laughs> you know that it was going to be as controversial as it was? We expected that it would. We expected that it would be. Uh, and some of the reaction um, was a very orchestrated campaign in that pers- from that regard. But we really felt very committed to the message. We feel very committed to believing in the best of men. We feel very committed to what men can do to take a stand and and role model what we need in the next generation. And uh, and we believe in the best of men. Do you think that it ended up being a positive for the business as well? I, I think it's, I think it can be a positive for the business. One of the things that was really um, noticeable, and you know, we measure everything, and we we <laughs> sounds like work to yeah, be. I was about there to say, it sounds familiar. <laughs> we work to be very authentic in our voice because if you're not authentic, it it comes across as that. But certainly, if you think about Generation Z or millennials under 30, we had a very positive reaction. They had a very positive reaction to that entire campaign. Um, and frankly, our intention with that was to spark a conversation, to spark a dialogue, to have people talk about it and, and learn and, and create discussion, and we certainly did that. And that was the intention. Carolyn Tasta, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Carolyn is a group president for North America for Procter & Gamble, based in Cincinnati, of course, but joining us here at the Bloomberg Business of Equality Summit at Bloomberg headquarters uh, in New York City. We can all, we can all attest it's very sunny out it's today. It's a beautiful we day. <laughs> we have sun in our eyes and everything. Carolyn, thank you so much. Uh, clearly, Lisa, you know, a compelling issue uh, for corporate America. Uh, you know, it's I think that the data has been clear for years that equality, diversity uh, within the companies, within the boardrooms, it's good business. You see it in security performance, uh, so that data is pretty clear. Well, immigration and the accompanying nationalism was certainly a central theme to the 2016 presidential election, and it has become even more prominent under the Trump administration. Um, to see how business and political leaders are navigating this complex issue, we welcome Ali Nurani. Ali is the executive director of the National Immigration Forum based in Washington, D.C., but he joins us uh, here today at the Bloomberg Business of Equality Summit here at the Bloomberg headquarters in New York. Ali, uh, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. Um, how, you know, how does immigration reform and the rise of nationalism impact corporate America? How, how is corporate America dealing with this? We, we know it's a political issue, but how is it from the business perspective? Well, our sense is that corporate America is really trying to parse out the politics from the policy. Uh, you know, clearly this is a really uh, intense political debate at the national level, but corporate leadership across the country is really trying to understand how do they serve their immigrant consumers, but also how do they integrate and support their foreign-born workforce and really kind of create a corporate family culture. Um, We've been actually working closely with corporations from 
Walmart to Chobani to Cummins and, and many others uh, to really help them uh, develop the strategies to better integrate their foreign born workforce and provide the skills and opportunities so that all of us can thrive. So you've been doing this a long time, right? How much is what we're seeing now in terms of the wave of nationalism different from uh, periods of time in the past, both that you've seen as well as just in the history books in the United States? If you look at the history books, uh, I mean, the sad part of our nation's history is that we have a long track record of not being very nice to the people who come after us. Um, you know, the turn of the 19th century, uh, you know, there have been peaks and valleys of this debate. What's different now is that we have a media environment that is very quick, is very partisan, and brings that picture, that sound of the family fleeing violence or corruption or poverty to your living room. So there's a perception or a feeling that you know the refugee fleeing Syria, the migrant fleeing Honduras is going to be your next door neighbor tomorrow. So what can leaders do in the corporate sector and the public sector uh, do to help the American public understand global migration? I mean, look, this is going to be one of the top issues for generations to come. 65 million people are forcibly displaced today. Over 250 million people live in another country, uh, outside of their home country. This issue isn't going away. We need leadership from the corporate sector, which is emerging, um, as well as from the elected uh, officials. So you've traveled uh, to Honduras, to Mexico. You've seen what the U.S. southern border issue is on the other side. What are, some, what are some of your experiences there? So a few weeks ago, I was part of a delegation that went from San Pedro Sula in Honduras to El Paso and into Juarez. And what's really clear is that in a country like Honduras, it's just 8 million people, not a very large country population-wise. Um, it it's undergoing a very, very toxic mix of corruption, violence, and poverty. So people are now at this point are saying, you know what, as a group, we can be safe by walking to the U.S. to seek asylum and safety. This administration, unfortunately, has done everything in their power to stop people from being able to seek asylum. The amazing part is that when we were in El Paso, you have the faith community, the business community, law enforcement who want to make sure that people can apply for asylum in a safe and fair way. If people don't apply or don't, are not eligible, they, should, they shouldn't be allowed to remain. So we're not saying everybody should be able to come. We should be able to say if people are seeking asylum, they should be able to apply for asylum. So one of the big arguments against allowing, uh, having an easier policy of bringing in immigrants is that they will take jobs and they will accept lower wages than uh, people who are already in the United States will accept. And that will drive down uh, how much people get paid. What have you seen with respect to that? And, uh, you know, is, that, is anything changing on that front? Yeah, so a few years ago, there was a National Academy of Science panel back at the leading academics in the, in the country looking at precisely this question. Um, and we have to be honest about it. Um, at the high skill or even the middle skill level, there is no impact and it grows quick. Uh, the uh, positive impact grows quickly over time. That's the H1B issue, probably. Probably, yes. right? At the lower skill level of their economy, there is a small impact on wages. We're talking a 1% you know, impact, more or less. That impact, negative impact, dissipates quite quickly as you move uh, through time. So net benefit to the economy writ large is positive. The questions that American workers have and their families have, because ultimately we all want the same thing, we want our children to do better than us, is real. So I think as advocates, as corporate leaders, we have to be honest about that conversation and help people understand that immigrants are creating jobs, they're protecting American values, and ultimately they are like the rest of us. They want to make sure their children are going to do better than them. So in this very politicized environment as it relates to immigration, what are you seeing from corporate America, from the boardrooms? How aggressive can they be? 
in this environment? Well, you know, um, Lyft is an amazing example, right? So the new, they're in the news right now because of the, their pending IPO. They released yesterday news that they are working with us, the National Immigration Forum, to help their drivers improve their English language skills. This is a program that was initially funded by the Walmart Foundation. We're also working with Whole Foods and Kroger's uh, and a number of others. But for Lyft to say, we are a socially responsible company, we're going to do good by our drivers because that makes us uh, a more responsible American citizen, um, I think is, is not just reassuring, but it's inspiring to uh, hopefully the rest of the corporate community. Are there any uh, industries, just quickly here, that are suffering right now as a result of reduced immigration to the United States? Oh, the list can go on and on. Um, uh, you know, so if we want to maintain 3% GDP as a nation, we've got to figure out our immigration system. We need a functioning legal immigration system that provides adequate labor for the agricultural sector, not just seasonal, but year-round labor like the dairy industry, um, the service sector, hotels, uh, um, processing. But interestingly, even the manufacturing sector in the middle of America, they are you know, really scrambling for not just labor writ large, but you know, the folks that can do the advanced manufacturing. Um, so it's just very easy to, for this conversation to become political and be a, kind of a war of talking points. But when you look at the data, when you talk to families and business leaders at the local level, they're saying, you know what? We need a functioning immigration system here, folks. Ali Narani, Executive Director of the National Immigration Forum in Washington, D.C., joining us here in New York for the Bloomberg Business of Equality Summit held at uh, the headquarters here. Uh, really interesting uh, to, to hear about immigration. Whenever we talk to uh, corporate leaders, they all talk about how they do kind of rely, frankly, on people coming in in order to fill their ranks. As automation and high tech continues to rise across the economy, workers must continuously retrain to remain competitive. To help us dig into this growing issue, we welcome Jake Schwartz. Jake is co-founder, chief executive officer of General Assembly. He joins us here in New York at our headquarters. Uh, Jake, thanks very much for, for joining us. I wonder if you could give us a sense of kind of the skills gap that we hear about a lot as technology continues to permeate throughout the economy. A lot of workers feel displaced and the technological gap is often cited. What, what is going on out there in the economy and, and, and our businesses doing the right thing to retrain? Yeah, well, um, I mean, that's a, a big set of questions, really, because we're talking about essentially the entire economy. Um, I, think, I think we can sort of divide it up into a couple core issues. I would say probably the biggest is that almost every company, regardless of industry, regardless of location or size, um, regardless of how previously sort of dominant and competitively advantaged it was, um, is now sort of faced with a serious um, mandate to transform themselves into a software company, a data company, a cloud company, mm -hmm. um, mostly because the threat and opportunity that those technologies um, offer right now are so fundamentally large that it is, if they don't take it, there's an opportunity for new entrants to come in and, yep. and eat their lunch. So if you look at across consumer, industrial, financial services, mining, I mean, you name it, there is some sort of digital transformation at uh, afoot that is um, become sort of a fundamental existential question for that company. And they need people to do that. Now, 
what's funny about this is that um, because the, you know, while these changes have always happened in the past, and there's been upheavals, creative destruction, all that stuff in capitalism, it's all great. Um, the reality is, is I'm not sure if ever before every industry and every company in those industries have been searching for the exact same types of talent at the exact <laughs> same times. And, and so you can almost think of it as like a run on the banks, yep. right? But it's the run on the data scientists. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, and, that, and that's basically what General Assembly does, right? Is that you retrain we, we do. People in data science, right? Uh, data science, software engineering, product Tech. management, UX but design, all of these skills that are sort of so new, um, but so important to be able to actually make the stuff right. that allows you to be a digital company or a software company or a data-driven decision-making company. And we certainly hear uh, CEOs say all the time that they struggle to find the workers that have the skills that they need to fill the jobs that they have. My question is, is it enough to simply teach data science to somebody or to give them specific rote skills or is there something fundamentally amiss in sort of the whole education system that leaves people unable to do certain things? It leaves a limited pool of people who are able to uh, complete the tasks. Um, look, I tend to opt for the viewpoint that most humans have pretty elastic brains and can learn different things. Now, perhaps that's to different levels and there's different levels of interest and engagement for different individuals around different subject matter and that's fine. But um, at the same time, yes, there is something fundamentally wrong with our educational system. I mean, not to get too broad and no, like but existential, the, but, like, but I mean, when we talk yes. about skills gap, I mean, I just have to yes. wonder how much is just sort of like, this here's is, a data set. There is, but we have lived in a century where um, education was not particularly, the, the infrastructure of education, the institutions were not really held accountable to uh, corporate America or the labor markets to say, are you giving us what we need? Are you being, and they weren't being held accountable by the students themselves either. They weren't being held accountable really by their main customer, which for the most of the time was the government, right? Who was the payer for, for all of this stuff. So there was a huge accountability gap. Now, that doesn't mean that all that education is fully wasted. It's just dramatically inefficient. And I think you see that all the time. Um, when I went to liberal arts college, I went to a fancy liberal arts college, thought I was learning all this great stuff. But I remember whenever I'd get really interested in learning a skill, because like a, you know, a job I wanted outside so would have it, I would ask like a professor, hey, where can I go learn that here? And, and it would always be, oh, we don't do practical skills. It was my, sort of my, like, my college neither. Like, it's this like <laughs> taboo thing. No, 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 we're not here to do practical stuff. And it was almost like this sign of, of being down in the gutter with the people if you, were, if you were teaching practical things, right? Vocational school was for people who couldn't hack it in algebra class, right? And, and I think that mentality was what, when we started General Assembly back in 2010, what was what we were trying to sort of attack head on. And we were trying to build the, uh, something that was sort of a mix of vocational training from a parad paradigm perspective, but with the sort of branding and social cachet of graduate school so that people wouldn't be afraid to sort of come to do it. And we were, you know, surprisingly successful at it. Well, so Jake, it didn't, it didn't uh, serve you too badly to go to the fancy liberal arts college yes. after all. I will say, Jake Schwartz, co-founder and chief executive officer of General Assembly, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.